Scripture reading, sermon text this morning, Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, reading in the English Standard Version, Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word. Today I want to begin a a new series, brief series, a little topical series called Living Into the Name. That name being Jesus' name, God the Son. He puts his name on us when we're his. So we're going to spend four Sundays, including today, considering closeness to Jesus. That's what this series is about. That's what we mean by living into the name. How do we get close to Jesus? What is closeness to him? Is it a feeling? Is it an experience? Is it a practice? It's really all of the above. And I put this as living into the name as opposed to living up to the name, though both are aspirational, but living into is a little different angle. It's an angle we need. Living into the name. What's in a name? For a while, I had reason to fear that in naming my oldest son, Caleb, Caleb is an Old Testament name. He was one of the uh, 12 scouts, sometimes called spies, that were sent out by Moses to look at the promised land. And only Caleb and Joshua came back and said to the people, we can take the land. God is giving it to us. We need to be faithful and do as he's directing. And of Caleb specifically, God said, he follows me wholeheartedly. For a while, I had reason to fear that in giving my son, my oldest son, that name, someone highly honored by God himself, maybe I'd put too much pressure on my Caleb to live up to that name. Caleb was such an outstanding Old Testament figure, and my Caleb, for a a season, wanted to go by his middle name, and and that season wasn't a good season, and so I I feared that I had conveyed to him uh, wholeheartedness for God or else. I feared that until I was praying with a group of friends that I meet with uh, weekly. None of them uh, go to First of Ann. And we were praying for our children. I was introduced to this group because uh, they convened around the common experience of all having children that uh, had been through similar things. We'd all been through similar things in parenting. And so I was invited to be part of their group. And we meet each week to encourage one another. Um, in a variety of ways, but to encourage one another to to keep loving even after we've stopped approving. But in praying that day with those guys, uh, one of them prayed for Caleb that he would live into his name. And it was one of those yes moments for me. Because the fear melted away immediately, I, I recognized that's really what I've always wanted for him. I named him Caleb to have a name to live into, not, not a, a name to live up to. Both are aspirational. 
but there is a qualitative difference. Uh, one is more invitational, whereas uh, the other is, is more aspirational. Now, aspiration isn't bad. Don't misunderstand me. We all need examples to emulate. We uh, need to push ourselves at points. We need people who call us up to their example. But if you're only living up to, that can feel pressured. Uh, you, you can feel forced by that. And then you don't know what to do with your failures. A lot of people who feel like they're always trying to live up to someone or something, some standard, some measurement, when they fail to, they're, they're absolutely devastated by that. They don't know what to do when they have failed to live up to the expectation put upon them by themselves or others. So living into is also aspirational, but it takes a different angle. It takes uh, more of an invitational angle. It's more about calling than pressure. It's being welcomed more than forced. It's being pulled, living into is being pulled more than, than being pushed. That's how I hope this series comes across. This series about living into the name. What is closeness to Jesus? He puts his name on us. We live into his name. What is this? about. Let me give you how the message uh, renders verses 29 and 30 here. I, I always uh, advocate when people are reading the Bible, they, they read one of the standard English versions, the New American Standard, New International Version, English Standard Version that I use. But as a supplement, sometimes it's, it's good to have uh, with you a, a living Bible, a new living translation. The message uh, is a, a favorite of mine. Let me give you how the message translates verse, just verses 29 and 30. 27 to 30 is our text, but in, verse, uh, in the message, verses 29 and 30 read like this. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. I love the invitational ring of that. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's a, that's a beautiful rendering of an already inviting text. Jesus here saying, come to me, learn from me. Now someone says, yeah, but what about Jesus calling us to take up our cross and to follow him, I mean, that, that seems to be the imposition of something heavy upon us, the cross. I'm glad you asked that because that's, that's next week's text. <laughs> next week, we'll go to the end of Matthew 16. We're at the end of Matthew 11 today. Next week, we'll go to the end of Matthew 16 where Jesus says in that text, if you're going to come after me, take up your cross and follow me because we have to square with that as well in developing closeness to Jesus, his expectations. But we begin this brief and by no means exhaustive or even complete consideration of how to get close to Jesus by starting here in Matthew 11, this text, this inviting, welcoming text, some of the most favorite words of Jesus that any, anybody would go to because we start here because this text in Matthew 11 signals to us something we need first in order to get close to Jesus, in order to draw near to Jesus, to have any uh, internal compulsion to do that. 
as responding to an invitation, first, we need Jesus to be our Savior before he is our example. Jesus first has to be our Savior before he is our example. I I don't believe we'll ever feel closeness to Jesus if we do not first and foremost see him as welcoming. Jesus never goes chasing uh, after people, though he does pursue, and he certainly isn't needy. He doesn't say, come to me because he's lonely and he needs friends. He doesn't want admirers. He doesn't want flatterers. He wants followers. He wants imitators. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Keep company with me. Live into my name. Translation, Jesus is always first and foremost our Savior before he's our example. If you've grown up in church as I have, nobody purposefully got that backwards for you. But depending on the kind of church context you grew up in, I I grew up in one that was um, uh, more emphasis was placed on living up to. You know, you're a Christian and you need to look the part. And so you need to, you know, scrub from yourself uh, everything that would not look the part. And, and it wasn't that you were being set up for some kind of failure. Everybody who taught and invested in me were sincere and genuine and wanted me to, to live up to the name. But it took me a while to realize that Jesus first had to be my Savior. That's the rest part of this. That, I, that I, I didn't have to earn my keep with him. That obedience was prompted out of love for him. Not if I don't obey you, you'll reject me and, and then I'll have to start all over again. Jesus had to first be my savior before he was my example. In the context I grew up in, my, my parents didn't teach me this. Uh, the church I grew up in didn't teach me this. But I, somehow I picked up the example part And I sort of took for granted the Savior part. And it was uh, only as I got older that I started to realize, you know, I needed to rest in Jesus being my Savior. Jesus is my example, but he's not my example before he's my Savior. And I think if we get that order right, then the closeness that we want to cultivate with Jesus, it has a, a, a chance. Keep company with me. Live into my name. The greater emphasis of the gospel is always Jesus' work for us. That's always the, it's not, it's like in gymnastics, you've got the uneven bars, the higher bar and the lower, but the higher bar is always Jesus' work for us. There is a response we make. There are things for us to do, but it's a response. He's the initiator. He's the giver. We're the responders. If you try and take Jesus as your example, Before you know him as your savior, he will crush you. You can't live up to his name. You can't live up to him. Only he was ever flawless in every respect. And so he came here to do for us. That is to live the life of flawlessness before God that we should live, but we're incapable of living. We have to have him do it for us first. So he's our savior before he's our example. Now, 
He does say here in our text, he says it in verse 29, learn from me. So you've got these two invitations. Verse 28, come to me. Verse 29, learn from me. So there is exampling. We're invited in to learn. Literally, that's what the word disciple means. It means learner. But the learning, it's, it's, it was never intended to be a Philip on head knowledge. There are rhythms of grace. If you're learning rhythms, like learning music or like learning dance or, or like learning a, a certain way to run a play in, in football, there are rhythms. There are patterns that we follow. There's a certain way to do it. And that's the invitation of this text, not just gather a lot of head knowledge. That's not the, exactly the kind of learning. Certainly there's a lot to learn doctrinally. We learn scripture. We're word-based people. But the, the word basis is for action. It's to get into our motivational structures, our reactions. The he that we learn from, learn from me, he says in verse 29. The he we learn from is our savior before he's our example, which means the cart is never before the horse when it comes to Jesus. In fact, with the imagery of the yoke, which we'll, we'll get to momentarily, Jesus is not even driving us from up in the cart. We do have a response to render to God. As recipients of such great grace that comes to us by way of what Jesus did for us, accomplished for us, we show our learning, we're learning from him, we show that in creed and conduct that, that complement, that's the goal of every believer, despite whatever we struggle with, through whatever we struggle with, but where closeness to Jesus begins where we learn that following him is about living into the name rather than up to the name is Jesus is always our savior before he's our example. So with that as the, the grand backdrop, two takeaways today in this light. The first will be who Jesus is according to this text, who he tells us he is according to this text in Matthew 11. And then the second will be what Jesus gives us according to this text in Matthew 11. Who Jesus is in being our Savior. He says he's gentle and lowly in heart. That means humble. And then what Jesus gives as our Savior. He gives us rest. He gives us a yoke slash burden. Easy yoke, light burden. The unforced rhythms of grace is a wonderful way of putting that. So first... Who Jesus is in being our Savior. He says, verse 29, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Another way of putting that in the Gospels is he's the friend of sinners. Sinners are the people he wants. Good thing because what does the New Testament tell us? We've all sinned. In our unrighteousness, in our self-righteousness, we have all failed whether we never tried or we tried with everything in us, we've all failed to live up to God's standard embodied in Jesus. So Jesus comes to live the life we should live, substitutes himself in our place to die the death we should die, that is a, a, a death of, of penalization for what we have not done before God. Jesus takes that penalty on himself 
And he says, come to me. He's invitational. Let's just stop here for a moment. Can you believe, can you believe that Jesus Christ is actually really for you? I hope you've never gotten over that. That he wants you as you are. That he's not a reluctant savior. That he's not sorry ever met you. I love the psalm, uh, Psalm 16, that says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because one of the things that tells me is that there's nothing I can do to screw up his joy. (laughs) I mean, how many times in my life, sorrowful about my own sin, upset with myself, tired of myself, have I thought, you know, Lord, I'm just screwing up your joy. No, (laughs) it doesn't happen. There is joy in his presence even with my sinful self there. Because what Jesus accomplished is so good and so sufficient. God relates to me through that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus says he's gentle. He says he's uh, lowly in heart. Gentleness is really not so much about personality, though that was part of Jesus' personality, but when the New Testament develops the idea of gentleness. It tells us it's a fruit of the Spirit. And so as a fruit of the Spirit, that means it's something that God's Spirit cultivates within our character. But, you know, you may not be a gentle person. You may be a rough person. You don't mean to be, but you just kind of are. You feel rough. Uh, Situations calling for gentleness feel klutzy to you. Gentleness really comes out of theology more than personality. You know, you, you look at this, you say, well, I'm, I'm glad Jesus is gentle because I'm not. And yet we're called to be gentle. The uh, call to worship this morning, um, let your reasonableness be known to all. It's, it's also translated, let your gentleness be evident to all. That quality of gentleness is reasonable. It's not a shutdown kind of quality. You're going the way I don't want you to, so I'm done with you. He's gentle. There's so much Uh, enveloped up in that he's gentle and lowly in heart meaning humble and what's remarkable about this pairing as he says in uh, verse 29 I'm gentle and lowly in heart what's remarkable in context about this pairing is that verse 27 has said all things have been handed over to me by my father which is a, a statement of I am the ultimate sovereign over everything seen and unseen Look at it, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And yet he says in verse 29, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm humble. Every molecule, every superlative belongs to him. If anyone had the right to strut around the universe in self-beholding, it would be the one to whom it all belongs. He has untold power and yet says he's gentle and lowly in heart. This, it's amazing to consider that our God is like this. doesn't have to be. You realize how problematic power is? The three great temptation stores for people, men and women, is money, sex, and power. And of the three, Christians by and large woefully underthink power. 
We tend to assume if Christians can get power, that's good. If we can get access to the upper echelons uh, in politics, in business, in academia, in entertainment, in, in, among, among cultural influencers, if we can just get to the upper parts, then our influence of Christ will reach so much farther. But what if, and this has happened, once we rise to high places, we go quiet and become complicit in the misuse or abuse of power? We don't speak truth to power to preserve ourselves. What if the power given us becomes a shackle, enslaving us to people-pleasing? Happens to a lot of pastors. So that we get to keep our jobs. If we don't offend anybody in the congregation, then we get to keep going. Nobody goes after us. What if we don't use our power for those most in need? Humility is really about that, you know. It's really about the right use of power. Humility is not thinking less of yourself as in humiliation. It's thinking of yourself less. You've probably heard that description of humility. It's a, it's a brilliant description. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, humiliating yourself, putting yourself down. Humility instead is thinking of yourself less. But humility as in practice, it's not just a posture of I've, I'm thinking of myself less now, this is my mindset, therefore I'm humble. It's a practice, not just a state of mind, but a right use of power, whatever power you have. I mean, think by contrast of pride. We're thinking about humility. Jesus says he's lowly in heart, meaning he's humble. What's pride? Pride is self-exaltation. Biblically considered, we'll get into this a little bit next week in the Matthew 16 passage. Pride is self-exaltation that denies the grace of God, the personal need for it, that says to God, you can't ask me to carry a cross. But if salvation is all of grace, why can't he ask that? We'll talk about that next week. Pride grasps at power. But when Jesus says, putting verse 27 and verse 29 together, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And yet I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart. When you put the two together, it means he uses his unparalleled power. No one is his equal. He uses his self-exaltation and dominance over everything, not to dominate, but that his gentleness would be evident to all. Gentleness is not passive, live and let live, neither is humility, humiliation. Humiliation, in fact, is what happens when somebody wrongly uses their power. But here's what we don't often think about. Only those with some kind of power can actually choose humility. To use their power in service to others. I, all of us Westerners... I mean, as Western people living in relative affluence, most of us, uh, we have personal power. We have purchase power. We have uh, influential power with those who represent us in, in government. We, uh, we're well-connected, a lot of us. We know people. We can get things done. Westerners, by and large, 
uh, have incredible personal power that most people in the world comparatively do not have. That's why the world is always sort of amazed and mystified at the same time by Americans, because we, we have this personal power that most people in the world do not. But Jesus is not saying here when he says, hey, I've got all this power, but I'm gentle and I'm, I'm lowly in heart. He's not, it's not a contrast. He's not saying, uh, I'm the king of tolerance, you know. Do whatever you like. I'll look the other way. I could interfere with you, but I won't. That, that's not what it means when he says he's gentle and humble. It means God, as the very one who could crush you under the weight of his power, is for you. Isn't this inviting? Don't we need this set in our hearts in order to know we can get close to him? That, we, that he wants us because he welcomes us? I mean, nothing on his side is stopping us. It's all on our side. And, and usually when we don't feel close to him, it's, it, it may be because we really don't know him and, and we don't know where to start and we need some discipling. We need somebody to mentor us and help us, somebody who seems further along with Christ. And, and we ask them, would you, would you help me grow? Would you help me learn who the Lord is? And, but a lot of times what's on our side and the reason we don't get close is because we're overpowered by our guilt and our shame. And the more guilt and shame we feel, feeling we need to atone for ourselves, the less close to him we feel. We will avoid him. We'll feel like a stranger. And we're all guilty before him. We're, we're always, all of us are always, in a sense, strangers to grace. We know it, we love it, we prize it, we sing about it, we cherish it, but we're always also strangers to it. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. I, uh, I love this little story told about Joe Lewis, the boxer. This comes from uh, John Dixon's book, Humilitas, and I thought of it thinking about these, uh, this passage. Back in the 1930s in Detroit, three young men hopped on a bus, tried to pick a fight with a lone man sitting at the back of the vehicle. They insulted him, but he didn't respond. They turned up the heat of the insults. He said nothing. Eventually, the stranger stood up. He was bigger than they had estimated from his seated position, much bigger. He reached into his pocket, handed them his business card, and walked off the bus and on his way. As the bus drove on, the young men gathered around the card to read the words, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> they had just tried to pick a fight with the man who would be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949, the number one boxer of all time, according to the International Boxing Research Organization. Second on the list is Muhammad Ali. It was said of Joe Lewis that he could knock out a horse with one punch. Now, I, I struggled to ponder how that was proven, okay? Uh, but you get the point. Man was strong as an ox controlled. This is the idea that we're getting in this passage. God and his power could waylay us, <laughs> absolutely, and yet he welcomes us. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. All things have been given to me and all things are mine. The New Testament goes on to say in the book of Hebrews that everything is subject to him, yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. But it is. 
And a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The New Testament says that in Philippians 2, that Jesus is Lord, the undisputed reigning king over all the earth. Revelation, we looked at it a few months ago. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, his chosen one. I love the uh, words of uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, reflecting on this very passage. If you are conscious of yourself as a sinner, he will not question you about it. He will not break the bruised reed even more, but will raise you up when you accept him. He will not identify you by contrast, by placing you apart from himself so that your sin becomes even more terrible. He will grant you a hiding place with himself and hidden in him he will hide your sins for he is the friend of sinners. I don't know about you, but this makes me want to get closer to him. Taking his welcome seriously. And yet the question remains, how? How do we get close? And that takes us to our second consideration by way of what Jesus gives as our Savior. Our first consideration, who he is as our Savior, gentle and humble, though everything is subject to him. We need him to be our Savior before he's our example because elsewise we, we, don't, we don't feel welcomed. We won't feel like we can get close to him, but he's made the way open. He's made the way clear and clean and, and open and clear for us. In fact, we should be the ones. This is also a Kierkegaard uh, insight. Kierkegaard says, it's the sick who call for the healer. Come to me. Take pity upon me. Show me mercy. Come to me, Lord. But in this case, it's the healer who says, you come to me. In our sin, we declare independence for ourselves. He says, come to me. And when we do, if or when we answer his invitation, we then learn to utilize what he gives us, which is rest and a yoke. I like that the message puts this in the picture of unforced rhythms because easy yoke is paradoxical, meaning it looks contradictory. Easy yoke, light burden, looks like a contradictory thing, but it's actually something in tension. He says, verse 30, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We reserve the word burden to designate something heavy. If it's a burden, it's hard to carry. If it's a burden, it's hard to hold up under. If it's a burden, it's likely unwanted. Burdens you want to get rid of. Yokes you want to throw off. We talk like this. Throw off that yoke. Get rid of that burden. The yoke was um, a wooden frame that was placed on the shoulders of a team of oxen. Two oxen would be yoked together in this wooden frame. And the yoke would fit on their shoulders. And then there was this leather tack strap that would go back to the cart or uh, the plow or the wheat milling device. Yoked oxen were beasts of burden. They were the original tractors. We talk about getting rid of burdens. We talk about throwing off yokes. So what is going on here? Here's Jesus saying, I give you a yoke. I give you a burden. Yet it's an easy yoke, he says. A light burden, he specifies. What's that mean? Well, actually, what he says, verse 29, 
take my yoke upon you. See that? Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Which seems to mean, take my yoke upon you, which seems to mean learn from me. Work with me, as the message puts it, seems to be he's already in the yoke. We get in the yoke with him. He could be the one driving the plow. But the imagery seems to suggest that he teams with us in the yoke. It's his yoke. He's inviting us to get in it with him. What does his name Emmanuel mean of the names of Jesus? God with us. And just as we see next week, he calls us to take up our cross. So did he. What kind of God is this? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There, there are rhythms to grace. Oxen walking in a yoke together. One's not out ahead of the, they're walking together alongside. There's a rhythm to that. Jesus' yoke isn't forced on us. We're invited into it with him to learn how to walk with him. We get to work with him. We get into his rhythm that he sets. He's with us in the yoke, which says what? He's our savior before he's our example. Though he is the greater one who will command us, yes, he invites us to him and he pictures it here. He pictures following him as going alongside him actually. As if we were yoked together. The picture is he's not riding us. He's not driving us. God enters the yoke. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Showing us from within this yoke. It, within this thing. This structure. We're shown what? How to take Jesus' way. How to follow his lead. How to, how to walk in his steps. Jesus' truth, Jesus' life. And what makes this easy for us, his word choice, is that he already bore the greater weight of the work in satisfying every demand of God. That's what we rest in. What's the rest? The rest is you don't have to do the work of getting the approval with God. It's been done for you. You rest in that work. You, you lean back on it. You lean into it. Everything I needed to be justified before God, which means to be declared righteous, has been accomplished for me by Christ. He's our Savior before He's our example. He is our example. He will command us. The one you are getting close to is one who has expectations. Let no one misunderstand me. We have an obedience to render and a resilience to develop and a trust to maintain and strengthen. But he tells us here in this passage, if we'll get yoked alongside him, we will live into his name. And so with him, it's never live up to this or else. It's live in. And as you do, what do you find? Your desires for him increase. You begin to look for him in experiences. You, 
Your appreciation of him deepens. Your, your joy and satisfaction in things you share with him. You bring to him. You open to him. You thank him for. What happens is that Jesus is no longer just a person in the Bible. A person that we read and hear about on Sundays. He's the person who interests you the most. The person whose life you want in your life as much as you can get it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for opening to us a relationship with your Son to whom all things owe their allegiance and the imposition of Christ in and on our lives is through gentleness and humility. Lord, you could have uh, commanded us by way of uh, giving us things we could not do. You could have told us that if we want to have any hope of seeing you, here's all the things we need to do. And if you'll go about this throughout your life, You'll get it. You, you could have dangled a carrot out in front of us that we could never get to. But you sent your son to live the life we should have lived. And then die a death that we should die. In penalty for, for sin, though he knew no sin. He was treated as if he was guilty of everything that we've done. And even the things we've not done, the negligence, what we should have given ourselves to, Jesus took the penalty for all of that upon himself, upon his capable shoulders. And we thank you, Lord, that he not only lived flawlessly, that he sits at the right hand of God from which he will come. We pray, Father, that you will help us to cultivate a closeness to you in this day and time the world is not probably going to get better though there are things you have left us here to do but Lord in all the focus and all the stuff that's out there all the noise all the things that uh, present themselves to us Lord may we see ourselves as ambassadors emissaries yoked with Jesus that following him is about taking his yoke and finding as we do that whatever you require of us, whatever you ask, we want to render it as reflected in the work you've done in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.